The scripture reading for this morning is taken from Mark 14, verses 1 to 11, and you can find it on page 826 of your pew Bibles. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Thanks, Helen. We wanted to test your ability to read without distraction, so we paused the turned your mic off halfway through. No, I'm just kidding. I forgot that I was supposed to wear my advertising, so coming to the retreat, I'm wearing my shirt now. And uh, I promise not to cry for the next little bit. But I also want to point out, I'm not embarrassed that I cried. I, it took longer. I wanted to be able to say what I was saying, but I'm not embarrassed. So I, don't, I think this is an unfortunate thing, right? We all feel awkward and embarrassed, but we shouldn't be. Tears are our gift from God for love and all kinds of good things. So I just want to put that out there. It's not an embarrassing thing. So if you ever find yourself in that situation, I hope you don't feel embarrassed, even if you wish you weren't doing it. <laughs> Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the questions that Jesus asked people. Uh, there's a professor of theology, Carrie Dearborn, and she says Jesus uses questions as a means of connection and transformation to awaken us and whet our appetites, to invite us to draw nearer that we might open up more fully to God and to God's purposes in and for us. And the story that Helen read for us, I think, is an example of both awakening and wetting our appetites. Though for the people in the story that he asks the question to, it is meant to correct wrongful thinking and wrongful behaviors. Speaking of wetting your appetite, this picture of a sandwich that's coming up on the screen. How many of you does this make your mouth water? Oh, yeah, a couple, yeah. How many of you makes you never want to eat a sandwich again? (laughs) Yeah, oh, surprisingly more. It's appealing or it's unappealing. This actually has nothing to do with anything, but um, I thought it was funny. The reason, though, I'm using a picture of a sandwich is for the purpose of biblical interpretation. (laughs) 
This is what's called a Markin sandwich. Sorry, not, not that. That's not a Markin sandwich. That's pastrami on rye, which is the most commonly ordered sandwich at a Jewish deli. So I thought it was appropriate for a story about Jews in the Old Testament and New Testament. But all joking aside, uh, the scripture passage that was read for us is an example of what many caller, scholars call a Markin sandwich. As you may recall, in the Bible, we have four different narrative accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which we call the Gospels. And one of the Gospels is called the Gospel of Mark. And the author of the Gospel of Mark regularly uses a letter, literary technique that has come to be called the Markin Sandwich. It is where he is telling a story, and he seems to get sidetracked in his story, and he starts telling another different story that seems unrelated, but then he comes back and he finishes the first story well, at the outset, these stories seem unrelated. It has come to be generally accepted that they are actually very intentionally put together, like a sandwich, where the meat of the story is actually the middle. Within the first story, there's like two pieces of bread holding it together. And so for Mark, the theological key is the middle story, and this happens multiple times throughout his gospel. And don't worry, I'm not going to have a test on this. Um, I just felt it was simply helpful for you and for all of us when we read the Gospel of Mark. This is something to pay attention to because it helps us. We can ask questions like, what do these stories have in common? This story isn't randomly here. It's there for a purpose. What do they have in common? How do the bread add to the meaning of the meat story? So with that, we can get rid of our sandwich picture and ask, look at why Jesus asks, why are you bothering this woman? Let's look at this passage. Uh, the story begins with now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. I, I probably should have used a sandwich um, with matzah or tortilla or something because I used a non, I didn't use an unleavened bread sandwich anyway. Some. The festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or people may riot. And then we skip to the rest of the story in verse 10. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The story is the first in a chain of events that will lead to Jesus being killed. And it begins with the Jewish leaders scheming to arrest and kill Jesus. And it ends with them finding the answer to how they'll do it with one of Jesus' best friends. Judas, one of Jesus' closest disciples, approaches them and offers to betray Jesus for money. Right? So one of his closest friends is conspiring with leaders to kill Jesus in order to gain some money. So there's murder, betrayal, selfish financial gain. And this is an unspeakable ugliness. And so Mark stuffs in the middle of this ugliness a story of something beautiful. Mark wants us to feel the juxtaposition. That's just a fancy word that means a complete and utter contrast between these two stories. So going back to verse 3, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. 
Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another. Uh, that word indignantly, it means um, showing or feeling anger. It's usually showing your anger because of something that's unjust. So some of those present were, were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and so they rebuked her harshly. This jar of very expensive perfume, nard, was worth more than a year's wages. And this woman comes in, breaks the jar. So by breaking the jar, it was probably also expensive, and now they can't reuse it or resell it. You creation, us creation, those people who created it for creation, right? We don't do that. Smash our pots after we use them. Um, and she, she breaks the jar and she pours this over her head. Can you imagine how much good you can do in the world with a full year's salary? Like Sam said last week, if you won the lottery, say a year's salary worth, what would you do with it? We all think we would do something selfless with part of the money, but most people who win a lottery end up just spending it on themselves. Well, the people in the room with Jesus thought the same thing. We could have sold that to give to the poor. Instead, you just dumped it all at once. What a waste. What's wrong with you? And Jesus hears this, and he rebukes her harshly. Or Sorry, they, they rebuked her harshly. And the Greek word there is to flare your nostrils in anger. It's a kind of a weird word picture for us because I, I don't, anyway, I don't flare my nose <clears throat> when I'm angry. I don't think. I, do I, Monica? Maybe I do. It's a word, but it's a, it's a word picture where you're speaking such intense and attacking words in anger that your face is distorted. So even if your, your nostrils don't flare, their faces are distorted. Like they're, they're Vietnamese, they're harsh on this woman. And Jesus' response to them is no less strong. Leave her alone. That's the part you didn't hear when Helen's the microphone turned off. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? The question, why are you bothering her, is not like two child siblings who are just kind of annoying each other over the dinner table, right? This is actually, this like, you know, stop bothering your sister. Leave your brother alone, that kind of stuff. This is not what, uh, when, when he says stop bothering her, it's actually more like saying, why are you causing her trouble? It's two words, causing and trouble or bother. Why are you causing this woman trouble? And in some ways, I think the answer seems kind of obvious. These disciples have been with Jesus, caring for the poor and the hungry and the sick nonstop. It's what they do. And they themselves were actually poor as well. When they say you always have the poor with you, that's them. And here is this gift of a year's salary. The potential impact for the poor is quite significant. And whoosh, it's just gone, poured out in a moment. Now, I have to admit, when I read this story, I relate to them more than I relate to the woman. Their response seems kind of valid. But Jesus doesn't validate their actions at all. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. So that line, the poor will you will always have with you, too often people have interpreted this to justify not caring for the people who live in poverty and to not 
and or or maybe caring a little, but not a lot, um, because you know Jesus kind of seems to discount it here. But that is a gross misunderstanding of Jesus. So when Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, what he's actually doing is he's referencing an ancient command of God for the people of Israel. One of the first books, uh, it's in our Bibles, in the, one of the first books in the Hebrew Bible has many God's commands for his people is called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15.11. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, There will always be poor in your land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And interestingly, before this, Deuteronomy 15 verses 4 and 5, God says, however, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow these commands I'm giving you today. There need be no poor people among you, but there will always be poor people among you here, just a few verses apart. And I think what's happening here is God is saying, if you were fully to do what I'm commanding you, like fully to do what I'm commanding you, there would be no poverty in the world. None. If you actually did what I'm commanding you. None, no poverty. Everyone would be taken care of. But I kind of know already that's not going to actually happen. I know you humans. You're, going to, you're not going to do what I fully command. And therefore, there will always be people who are living in poverty. So I want to be sure you really get the point. And I can't stress this enough. You will always have the poor. So I command you to be open-handed, to forgive debts, to feed the hungry, free slaves, and on and on. There's so much in the Deuteronomy and in through the whole scripture about caring for the poor. Because God knows we aren't actually going to do it as much and to the extent um, that we should. Jesus and everyone in the room would have actually known this context. So Jesus was not saying this to minimize caring for the poor. In fact, when we pay attention to the context of the story, the chapter right before this is when Jesus commands the rich young ruler to give everything he has to the poor. When this story is told in the Gospel of Matthew, it comes right after Jesus tells people that when they feed the hungry, when they give drink to the thirsty, when they welcome the stranger, give clothes to the naked, care for the sick and the imprisoned, when they care for the poor, those who are in poverty, they are caring for Jesus because he is there. He is them. So if Jesus isn't intending, therefore, to minimize caring for the poor, what, why does Jesus ask them? Why are you bothering this woman? So let's go back to this woman's act of pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus' head. For many of us, this act, of course, would be pretty strange, right? You're essentially pouring $50,000 worth of Chanel number no. 5 over someone's head. But first century Judaism is very different than 21st century Canada. In their culture, when a guest came to your house, it was expected that you would have oil available to be put on their head. But instead of using your average run-of-the-mill household oil, which most houses would have had, to give us kind of a small honorary dribble of oil, to kind of give a small honorary dribble of honor, 
She breaks out this extremely costly nard, a year's salary worth, and she doesn't dribble it, but she pours it over his head. This is a big thing. This is, in comparison to the norm, it is, it is a huge sacrifice. Over-the-top expression of honor. A costly offering as an expression of overflowing devotion to Jesus. And Jesus' response is that this is a beautiful thing. That word beautiful is also the word that will be translated good often. It is good. It is beautiful thing. Before I started working as a pastor, <clears throat> I followed the natural progression of preparing for pastoral ministry. I worked on a cruise ship playing in a band. And uh, one of the best parts of working in the band on the cruise ship, besides the minimal amount of work you actually did, was that all of our expenses were paid for. Pretty much all of my income could go directly into my bank account and wait for me for when I returned to land. So I had a pretty nice nest egg that I planned to hold on to, so that, like all musicians, I could buy lots of gear, <laughs> lots of instruments and stuff. Perhaps, you know, a car or, you know, dishes, also some practical things as well. Within a couple weeks of getting off the boat, I was interviewed here and started working. Seven months later, I met the love of my life, Monica, here. Three months after that, we were dating. And it wasn't too long after this that I found myself hopelessly in love. Well, I guess it wasn't hope. I was hopefully in love because I began hopeful that she might actually say yes to marrying me. As was a tradition at the time, I wanted to get her an engagement ring, and I wanted to get one that would reflect the depth of love and, well, infatuation uh, that I had for her. And so in this new, all-encompassing love that I had for Mon, I wanted to express it in as grand of a way as I had the capacity. Not because she required it, but because I wanted to give it. I wanted to give it as an expression of my heart, my mind, and my will, and my body too, but I'm not going to talk about that part of things. And so, with all of the money from working on the cruise ship that I saved up, instead of using it for practical things like furniture and food, car payments, musical equipment, I poured it out into a gift that would express the depths of my love and commitment to Monica. Now, before you think about jumping here in the parking lot to steal her ring, it's not worth that much. <laughs> but for a young musician with no major income, it was everything. And I gave it gladly and still to this day with no regret or hesitation. It was an outpouring of my love and my devotedness to my beloved. This is as close as of a picture as I can get in my life of this woman's devotion. Though mine wasn't nearly as costly. And as amazing as Monica is, she isn't Jesus. How often do I have this kind of costly outpouring of devotion and love for Jesus? How about you? What does pouring yourself out in devotion and love for Jesus look like for you? I can't answer that question and I'm not even going to try. It's a question for you to think about. There are times where we are called to worship Jesus with costly extravagance. And then there will be others who don't understand it. It becomes even harder. Culturally, people understood what I did for Monica because it was accepted culturally. But there's so much as Christians, as people who love Jesus that we want to do that aren't accepted culturally. 
And people will look at us strange. When others don't understand it, it becomes harder, but it doesn't change the expression of our love. How many of you have friends, family, neighbors, coworkers who see you trudging out of the house early on a Sunday morning to be here and they're thinking, what a waste, right? What a waste of time and energy. Why do they bother when they could be spending time on something else, sleeping in, doing, mowing the lawn? Well, maybe not right now mowing the lawn, but. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be, give an example of extreme hardship, <laughs> We, we try, well, I, we can make this more painful, I guess, for you, and maybe you are in pain right now having to listen to me, and that you consider it a hardship, but I'm not trying to, this is, I'm not using coming to worship together as an extreme hardship, but I'm using it as an example uh, of how people don't understand the things that we do as Christians, because we love God. In fact, I, I hope I don't need to point out that there are many people, there are people here who are from countries um, that they are risking their lives just to be a Christian, never mind to go to a place to gather for worship. So I, I don't, don't misunderstand me there. Um, but people won't understand. People don't understand. And we may try to help them to understand what we do for Jesus um, even if they can't, Jesus is still worthy of our outpouring. Marva Dawn is the author. She calls communal worship, what we do here on a Sunday, a royal waste of time. Because we aren't coming here to produce something. We aren't coming here for what appears to be any real worldly practical reason. And I would say a lot of the things that we do for Jesus out of love for God, and sometimes we don't feel the love, but we're like, I, I want to stay close to God um, so I want to do something, right, to try to stay connected. Um, and so we do things that people don't understand. It's okay and underst it's understandable that people won't understand us. We might be here or other things. We might not be here for any apparent worldly reason, although I think that's a whole other talk, and I think there is lots of reasons, but... We might appear to be here for no other worldly reason, but we're here because, we'll be here because Jesus. Because there's something beautiful and meaningful about wasting our time worshiping with God together. There's something beautiful about coming together in community, about dancing with seniors at a senior's home, having tea with newcomers to Canada. I think it's important that we pay attention, that Jesus says about the woman, you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. This woman had Jesus right before her. She had the opportune time to give this gift. And it seems apparent that the Spirit of God was moving in her. Because what she did was not only an act of her own personal devotion to Jesus, in the midst of the ugliness in that sandwich, the midst of the ugliness of the leaders and the powerful scheming to kill and betray Jesus, here in the middle is this beautiful act coming not from the disciples, not from leaders, not from scholars, not from the powerful. That's who you would expect to, right? That's who you expect the big praise and the worship and the understanding to come from the leaders and the scholars, even the disciples. But that's not where it comes from. It comes from this unexpected place of an unnamed woman. Now, there are arguments, okay, is John's version talking about the same woman? Is this actually Marietta? There's a lot of things. But Mark intentionally doesn't tell us her name. 
He's got this big theme throughout his book, insiders and outsiders. And in the story, there's this outsider, an unnamed woman, not the disciples, not the leaders, not the religious people who really understood God. It was the unknown woman is the one who could prophesy Jesus' upcoming death and bless him and anoint him in it. She's the one who did something beautiful for his upcoming death in the midst of this ugliness. But unlike the woman, we don't have Jesus here with us. Well, I would say that we do. I would say her opportune moment was right in front of the actual physical Jesus. Our opportune moment is to worship Jesus and to pour ourselves out to Jesus where he is. I think we have, in a sense, we have Jesus here with us in one another as a community where two or three are gathered, the body of Christ. And so when we pour ourselves out to one another, we are doing something beautiful for Jesus. But before you think I'm getting too narcissistic and focusing inside, we have Jesus with us, as Jesus said, when we care for the hungry and the thirsty and the sick and the outcast, the marginalized, the voiceless, refugees, victims, Jesus tells us that is where he is when we care for them. We are caring for him. When we pour ourselves out for those who are living in poverty, under oppression, we are doing something beautiful for Jesus. We are doing this same kind of outpouring that she does. It's also important to notice that Jesus says she did what she could. I mean, this was a huge gift But Jesus asks no more of us than what we can do, than what we have placed before us. Jesus asks us to do what we can with what we have and with who we are. He's not expecting us to save the world, to stop all poverty as individuals, right? We just are called to do what is in front of us, to pour ourselves out to Jesus with what God has placed in front of us, with who we are, what we have. And I think there's something here also about how we judge others. When we have an understanding of what it means to worship God, whether it's in a gathering like this or it's in your own kind of personal worship or reading scripture or how, walking in nature, however you meet with God. When we have an understanding of what it means to worship God or we have an understanding of what it means to live for God, what we feel we are supposed to do, what we're supposed to focus on, or what sacrifices that we are called to make, when doing these things seems to us to be in line with Scripture and we are convicted by them, it is natural to want to place them on others. To judge others by what we think is good and beautiful. But like those in the room with Jesus and this woman, perhaps we don't see what the other person is doing is beautiful. To us, it might seem wasteful or unimportant. And we need to ask ourselves, are we unfairly judging someone else's outpouring to Jesus? Is it possible that even though we think we are being helpful and leading this person to something better, is it possible that Jesus would say to us in our judgments of how they are worshiping or sacrificing for Jesus, Is it possible Jesus wants to say to us, why are you bothering them? They're doing a beautiful thing for me. Now, there will be times, of course, we are called to challenge other people. um, But we should never begin with harsh rebuke, but with humility. 
And I think more often than not, we need to be open to the possibility that perhaps we can learn something beautiful from them. Jesus asks the people, why are you bothering her? Because they could not understand her extravagant act of worship. They could not see what was coming ahead in his death. So let us be a people who continue to grow in seeing that Jesus is indeed worthy of our lavish devotion. And let us be a people who worship Jesus with extravagant and beautiful outpourings of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, well, you, you, you said in this passage um, that all through history, this story is going to be told. This, this act um, was going to be celebrated. We thank you, God. I thank you for the challenge. The challenge um, of pouring myself out, of pouring ourselves out. And Lord, some, sometimes that's going to be a, a little thing. Sometimes all we have within us is just little things, little steps. For some of us, getting up in the morning and putting on some clothes is a huge step and a big sacrifice. And God, you see that. In the same way you see uh, the poor widow just giving a couple coins and you celebrate that and you see this woman giving a huge thing. You see us, you know us, and you love us regardless um, of what we give. Your love is not dependent on or requiring our gifts. But yet we want to love you so much that we want to pour ourselves out for you. So God, I just ask by your spirit that you would stir within us a deep love for you. And stir within us a deep love for your world, for those around us, for places of need. That we would see you in them and that we would love you by serving and caring for others. Pray this in your name. Amen.